great. Thank you all. And thanks to Tammy. That was a great reminder. Just even, even as she was sharing about Pericaleo, uh, and I'm sure I've never met your husband, but those sermons early on and maybe his own value and sense of worth uh, coming from his sermons and yours, um, I'm thankful that Kimbo's worth and value doesn't come from the quality of my sermons. Uh, several years ago is the great piece of advice that I tell myself almost every week. I try to tell myself every week. Scotty Smith, a hero of mine, uh, told me, he said, Jeremy, you don't have to hit a home run with your sermons every week. Just keep the gospel in play. And so that's uh, just keep taking hacks and keep the gospel in play. That's what we're going to try to do this morning. We're going to look at Acts 6, 8 through chapter 7, verse 60. Now, that's a very large um, section of Scripture. And we're not going to read that entire section. We're going to read just a handful of verses. So we're going to begin in Acts 6, 8. And then we're going to go all the way through the end of chapter 7, which is a couple of pages over. And if you've got a Bible, I would love for you to turn there. And if not, you can grab one from the pew racks. And this passage will begin on page 914. The passage obviously is printed for you in the bulletin as well. Before we read God's word, let's pray and ask for his, uh, his blessing and guidance. Heavenly Father, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word remains forever because your word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And your word works. It works irrespective of, uh, of my abilities or failures this morning or if I fumble over my words or any of that stuff, your word works. It doesn't return void. And so I pray the Spirit would go before the reading and preaching of the word. And you would accomplish in us exactly what you have designed. So open our eyes and unstop our ears and give us receptive hearts to hear Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, we'll begin in Acts 6-8. This is God's holy word. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came up on him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, we're not going to read it, but almost all of chapter 7 is one long sermon. Stephen essentially preaches his way through the entire Old Testament. He begins with the patriarchs, and then he makes his way to Moses and the Exodus, and then he transitions to the prophets and the exile. And we're not going to read it. It's one long sermon covering almost the entire Old Testament. It'd be great for you to read it this week. But let's pick up in chapter 7, verse 51, as the sermon is, is coming to an end. Stephen said, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. 
Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You have received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. May God write those beautiful but difficult words on our hearts. So we're, we're spending this year working our way through the book of Acts. And, and before we dive in uh, to this particular passage, I want to just pull the lens back for a moment to look at the big picture. Uh, the church was growing rapidly. We consider that last week on the day of Pentecost, about 3,000 souls are added to the church. Uh, what seems to be like a few weeks later after Peter and John are released from prison, 2,000 more are added to the church. Luke records that day by day, multitudes are being added. And almost all of the growth thus far came from, from Jewish converts. In fact, it's not until chapter 10 when we're introduced to, to Cornelius that we were introduced to the first uh, Gentile convert. And so, and so up to this point, these thousands of new Christ followers were Jewish, but they weren't all alike. Uh, last week I mentioned there were these two, two distinct groups of Jewish believers. You had the Hebrews and the Hellenist. And the Hebrews, they, they spoke Aramaic. They continued to, to practice traditional Jewish customs. Uh, many of them we see from Acts 2 and 3 uh, daily attended the temple. But the Hellenists, on the other hand, uh, while they were ethnically uh, similar, they were culturally quite different. They, they spoke Greek. They had been deeply influenced by Grecian culture. For the most part, they had abandoned traditional Jewish customs. The Hellenists were ethnically Jewish, but they wanted nothing to do with Judaism. And they pushed back against the Jewish ceremonial law. They pushed back against temple worship. It's, really, it's one of the reasons why, why Stephen is accused of abandoning really the Old Testament and the teachings of Moses. Because they were all in when it came to following Jesus. And Stephen was a Hellenist. Stephen had a uh, profound impact on the church, even though his appearance is ever so brief. We're introduced to him in chapter 6, and he's martyred in chapter 7. Christian tradition reminds us, and the scriptures tell us, that Stephen is the first Christian martyr. Many believe, and I, I tend to believe, that, that it was his sermon right here that God first used to pierce the heart of the Apostle Paul. We were to uh, borrow a line from Elton John. His candle burned out long before his legend ever did, right? He's, he's here for a moment. We're introduced to him, and then, he's, and then he's taken off the scene. 
And when we're, when we're first introduced to Stephen, really in chapter 6, verse 8, we find him preaching and performing miracles. And I think that's very interesting because it's more in line with what we see the apostles doing. We see something similar, we will, in the next chapter with Philip. Uh, C.G. Krauss says that the seven that were appointed in Acts 6, the ones we considered last week, the seven in Acts 6 were a bridge between the apostles and the two elder, or the two offices that come later, elder and deacon. And so I don't want to go too far into that, but we might think of these seven, Philip, uh, Stephen, Timon, and the others, as a sort of proto-diaconate. That's the big picture. That's what's going on. Thousands of people coming to follow Christ, all of them Jewish converts, distinct forms of, of practice and culture. But the question we need to ask is, what does this really mean for us? What, what is God revealing to us? How does this passage apply to folks who aren't apostles, who aren't elders, who aren't deacons, who aren't uh, miracle-working jack-of-all-trades like Stephen was? What does this mean for us? Well, i got three thoughts to share. And the first thing I want you to, to consider is pursue Jesus. Pursue Jesus, and his presence in you will be apparent. Right? Pursue Jesus, and his presence in you will be apparent. There was a recent survey of young people, uh, teenagers and just sort of post-college uh, age, and the question was asked of them, what do you want to be known for? Here's a few of the responses, just a few that I pulled out. I want to be known for being authentic and true to myself. I, I want to be known for my tenacity and resiliency. I want to be known as a creative whose creativity inspires people. I think my personal favorite, just for some, whatever reason, was I want to be a dreamer who's also realistic. Yeah. Now, now, I'm not going to ask you that same question, what do you want to be known for? But I want to ask you a couple of questions that are similar. When people look at you, what do they see? When people look at you, what do they see? When people describe you, what adjectives do they use? Could you repeat them in this setting? I said I've been called a few nouns lately. I love the description of Peter and John in Acts 4.13, what we considered several weeks ago. In Acts 4.13, the Jewish religious leaders looked at Peter and John, and it says they, they saw boldness. And I, I would love for people to, to look at me and see, and see boldness, but it's the end of that verse that really gets me, that slays me. The Jewish religious leaders looked at Peter and John and they recognized they had been with Jesus. What an amazing description. What do you want to be known for? When people look at you, what do you want them to see? When people looked at Peter and John, they saw folks that had been with Jesus. Jesus had rubbed off on them. He had joined himself to them. He had put his spirit within them. They'd been with Jesus. And here, when that same crowd of Jewish religious leaders looked at Stephen, they saw Jesus. Listen to how Stephen's described. 
in verse 5, which we considered last week. He's described as a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. In verse 8, Stephen is full of grace and power. In verse 10, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And so here's a man full of faith, grace, power, and wisdom, and it's observable. Don't don't miss that. Don't miss that. The church could look at Stephen. That's why he was put forth as one of the seven. They could look at Stephen and see. They could see a man full of faith and full of the Spirit. His enemies could look at him. They could observe that he was a man full of grace, power, and wisdom. They could see Jesus in him. Let's let's stop down for a little bit of application here. John Stott writes that, that grace and power, these two descriptions of Stephen, grace and power form a striking combination. It's sweetness and strength merged into one personality. When people look at you, what do they see? Do they see, do they sense the sweetness of grace? Do they see and do they sense spiritual strength? I I fear personally that too often when people look at me, they they sort of get a saccharine sweetness. Um, A sweetness that's sweet on the front palate, but a bitter aftertaste. That that people, and I, I do fear this genuinely, that people initially observe me as sweet, but then after they get to know me, they have the bitterness of judgment in my, how I perceive them. Listen, grace and power, sweetness and strength are not enemies. This is what others observe when we are with Jesus and with Jesus with us. You know, just this past week, (laughs) I need to take a page out of Jason's book. Um, He began during the season of Lent giving up Facebook. And uh, and then now that the Lenten season is over, he's pretty much continued with that. And uh, freedom. I need to do that because uh, this past week I was, I was so frustrated, I was so angry, I was, uh, I was reading a, a Facebook post, and the funny enough, the, thing that, the things that frustrate me the most are from our own internal tribe that was the PCA Teaching and Ruling Elders Facebook page, and, uh, and I was reading about the latest boogeyman facing the church. I mean, Jesus has been with this church for 2,000 years, but the latest boogeyman. And there was this call to action. We've got to be stand to, uh, firm and, and strong to stand against the encroaching evils. And I want to say yes, absolutely. We must be strong. Paul says that. He says that in Ephesians 6, that in the face of enemy and in, in the face of evil, we must be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. But, you know, Paul also says, even if I proclaim all mysteries and all knowledge and all truth, and I, I've got my eyes dotted and my T's crossed, but have not love, I'm nothing. And so if I were to put that in in my vernacular, it would be, yeah, be strong, but don't be a jerk. I want you to notice something about the description of Stephen. Twice we're told that he was full, that he was full of faith, grace, and power. It seems evident that he's full of wisdom. And that word full is a passive nominative. Now, I don't want to bore you with technical jargon at all, 
But what that means is that he had become these things through no ability or quality of his own. He was full of grace, faith, wisdom, and power through no effort, energy, or ability of his own. He was full of these things because the Holy Spirit had poured these things into him by the power of Christ. The Holy Spirit had filled him. Don't you long to be known that way? Wouldn't you give anything for people, even your enemies, to describe you this way? That it's so observable, they say, there's, there's a man, there's a woman who's full. Not full of it, that's what they say of me. <laughs> but who's full of faith, grace, power, and wisdom. That only comes from one source, friends. It comes from Jesus. It comes from the Spirit of Christ upon us and within us. And, and so here's the real application. Pursue Jesus and his presence in you will be apparent. Run to Jesus, fix your eyes on Jesus, and it will be observable. Cling to Jesus, or to use, or to use the language of John in, in his gospel, abide in me, or Jesus in, in John, abide in me, abide in Christ, and people will look at you and you'll say, so-and-so has been with Jesus. Here's a second thought. Proclaim Jesus, and he will fulfill his promise. So pursue Jesus, run to him, cling to him, abide in him, and it will be observable. People will see Jesus in you. But proclaim Jesus, and he'll fulfill his promise. Um, as Stephen preached, he began to get some major pushback from the hardcore Hebrews. Uh, we're given the name of some, some groups, the Freedmen, the Cyrenians, the Alexandrians, groups that came from Cilicia and Asia, and, and they, were, they were really different sects of Hebrews. Some scholars believe maybe that they shared common theology, common interpretations, but they came from different synagogues. They, they, they were all Hebrews, but they had small differences. But what does our passage tell us? They had one, at least one thing in common. They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen was speaking, and so they rose up and disputed against him. <laughs> quick, a quick note about the word disputed. In other translations, and, and more literally, it's to argue. These folks were Presbyterian long before there were Presbyterians. That they, they rose up and began to argue with Stephen. And, and so how did Stephen deal with this? As, this? as this crowd, as he is simply preaching through the Old Testament, uh, uh, this, this amazing Christ-centered message, they rose up and began to argue. What did he do? He kept his message focused on Jesus. He kept his message focused on Jesus. Can, can I give you a, a piece of free advice, particularly in the age of social media? Don't feed the trolls. You don't have to commit yourself to every dispute. You don't have to engage in every online argument. Just focus on Jesus. That, that's what Stephen did. He preaches perhaps the best, the best Christ-centered sermon from the Old Testament ever. And in response to that, this is when we turn the page to chapter 7, we're told that they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. 
And they cast him out of the city and, city and stoned him. I preached some bad sermons. I've preached some decent sermons. But I've never preached a sermon that got a response like that. You know, I would like to think that if, if, if given the opportunity, I would have the same boldness and confidence in Jesus to say what Stephen said. What did he say? He proclaimed the gospel of Jesus from beginning to end. From Genesis to Maps, he proclaimed Jesus. And we didn't read it, but I really want you to. I want you to go back this week and read those verses that we skipped. Uh, chapter 6, verse 16 uh, through chapter 7, that sermon. He walks systematically through the Old Testament and he points to Jesus at every stop along the way. And listen, I, I, know, I know it may sound cliche, but you know, sometimes cliches are true, even if they're a little bit cheesy. Make Jesus the message and let the chips fall where they may. Make Jesus the message and let the chips fall where they may. You aren't going to argue someone into faith your blog entry, your tweet storm, the things that you read. How many times have you been compelled to change your political position because of someone's Facebook post? You know, this past week, I was, I was reading a couple of things. Uh, one article was how to maintain the Christian Sabbath in a secular age. I read it a couple times, and the problem was it left out Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath. I was reading a couple articles this week about the evils of um, public education. And you know what? I wanted to, uh, I, I was so enraged over reading this that I actually wanted to take my kids out of the Christian school and put them in a public school just to spite the very people who wrote the article. Th those things aren't going to change anyone's mind. They don't. Make Jesus the message and let the chips fall where they may. Proclaim Jesus and he'll work through that. The, the reason why Stephen painstakingly preached the entire Old Testament and pointed to Jesus all along the way was so that the people of the covenant, his very accusers, would hear the good news and perhaps embrace new covenant faith. Now that didn't happen. Instead, they stiffened their necks and they hardened their hearts and they killed the messenger. But the problem wasn't with the messenger, it was with the message. When we proclaim Jesus, when we, when we simply speak of him and offer, offer others the hope that we have in Christ, some will hear it and it will be life-giving, soul-freeing, and they will run to Jesus like a parched desert wanderer. But the sad reality is that some will hear it and they'll take up stones. But that's not our business. Our business is to pursue Jesus and proclaim Jesus. Look, Stephen, Stephen's a savvy character. He understands what he's walking into. He understands the, the vitriol and the heat. And he just walks for an entire chapter through the Old Testament. And he points to Jesus. And, 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 and as I believe... It was the first thing that the Lord used to open the eyes of, the, of Saul who would become Paul. To pierce and to plant a seed. 
and for others it was a message of death, and it, it led to Stephen's death. But our, our job is to, is to pursue Jesus and to proclaim Jesus, and here's a third thought. Put your hope in Jesus, and you will know his smiling gaze even when you suffer. I mentioned Peter and John from chapter 4 that it was observable. People looked at them and it says they recognized they had been with Jesus. People could look, look at Stephen here and it says there was, this, there was this radiancy about his face and gazing at him, all, who, all of his accusers saw that his face was like the face of an angel. To put that a little bit differently, people would look at them and say there's just something different about them. There's something observable. They were different because they, would, they had been with Jesus. He was there all in all. And listen, that will get people's attention. When, when we run to Jesus and pursue Jesus and proclaim Jesus and put our hope in Jesus, that will be observable. People will recognize the difference that it makes. And listen, that won't always work out in our favor. In Stephen's case, it cost him his life. But there at the end of, the li of his life, as he looked up into heaven, what did he see? He saw the glory of God and Jesus. He left this life knowing the smile of God. Friends, Jesus smiles upon you. His loving gaze is yours. He sees everything you endure. He sees the accusations that you place upon yourself or that others do. He, he sees the trials that you endure, even for his name, particularly for his name, and he's pleased. What I want you to know is that's already yours. It's already yours. If you're a son or a daughter of God, the Father has spoken the same words over you that he spoke over Jesus. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased. Those words are yours because Jesus is yours. And it's, it's that hope, it's that confidence that Jesus is ours and that we are his that enables us and compels us to be all in. I am all in. Listen, I don't have the resolve. I mentioned earlier when they looked at Peter and John, they saw boldness. I'm not that bold. They look at Stephen and they observe single-mindedness. I, I, I'm not that single-minded. I'm double-minded. I, I don't have these things that I long for, but I have Jesus. And I know that no matter what I encounter, his smiling gaze is upon me, and that alone drives me to pursue him, proclaim him, even suffer for him. And friends, I want you to know it's yours too. If your faith is in Jesus, his smile is upon you. And you don't have to wait till the end of this life to see his smiling gaze. It's yours now. And so let's thank him for that and pray towards that end. Father, You sent your one and only Son so that we, rebellious sons and daughters, not only might be cleansed of our sin, but have the very righteousness of your one and only Son, Jesus, given to us. 
imputed to us, declared over us, so that now we can cry out to you, Abba, Father, and you can speak the same words over us. This is my son. This is my daughter. I am well pleased. Lord, help us, help us not to get sidetracked. Whether it's as, as our sister Tammy shared with us, the voices that we hear or the clutter of our hearts, help us not to get sidetracked, but just simply to pursue Jesus, to know who he is and what he has done for us and who we are in him. And as the watching world looks at us, they don't have to see people who have uh, great words who are all put together, who know how to answer every question, who can defeat every um, issue that's brought before them, but they see Jesus. And that we would make our message Him. That every point along the way, we would just speak of Jesus, what He has done for us, the great hope that we have in Him, and let the chips fall where they may. And we'll trust that some people will run to Him as we have, and others will, will reject Him but let us be all in. God, do that. It's not within us to just say, I can't simply as a, as a preacher, or even for my own self, say, do this. I don't have the resolve. We don't have the resolve, but I pray that the Spirit would do this within us, that the Spirit, who is that helper, would come alongside us and do for us what we can't do for ourselves to make us all in and sold out for Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.